0: From Washington D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department still several weeks away from bringing employees back to office spaces it closed because of the coronavirus pandemic. The Pentagon's chief spokesman, Jonathan Hoffman, says the building isn't closed and has never closed, but the department's cut back deeply on the number of employees that report there. USNI News reports Hoffman says the return of employees will happen over a number of weeks. The department's latest artificial intelligence buy is going through the General Services Administration. The Joint Artificial Intelligence Center will give a five-year, $800 million contract to Booz Allen Hamilton for AI warfighting operations. FCW reports that Jake is placing the buy through GSA's Alliant 2 government-wide acquisition vehicle. The federal database of dead people should move from the Social Security Administration to the Treasury Department, according to the Social Security Advisory Council. The council says moving the deathmaster file to Treasury would stop a lot of improper payments agencies have sent to people who've died. Federal News Network reports the migration from SSA to Treasury could take several years if it happens. GSA schedules consolidations going according to plan. According to Administrator Emily Murphy, she was on Government Matters talking about it recently, consolidation could drive an opportunity for pricing reform. Roger Waldron is the president of the Coalition for Government Procurement and writing about the issue in his Far and Beyond blog. Roger, thanks very much for coming on the program. What's the importance of this? Why is this on your radar screen in the first place? Well, pricing, Francis, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Um, Pricing reform
1: is critical to increasing competition and access to the commercial market. You know, at at this time, Emily Murphy is exactly right. Schedules consolidation is on schedule. It's a great opportunity to enhance the program, but part and parcel of that is reforming the pricing policies to reflect and take advantage of all the great work they're doing with regard to schedules consolidation. It will enhance the ability to to focus on solutions uh, via the schedules program. It'll eliminate barriers to entry for commercial firms, instead of focusing on pricing at the contract level um, on a labor hour rate, instead they can focus on competition at the task order level um, for customer agency requirements. to make the program more efficient, open it up to new innovative services and approaches. Um, and provide better value for the customer agencies.
0: You write in this blog post, Roger. The first step in multiple award schedule pricing reform is immediate implementation of the unpriced schedule for services priced on an hourly basis. What does that mean, and why do you think that's the place to start? Strikes me there are a lot of different places that GSA could begin.
1: Well, it, it goes to the heart of uh, it goes to the heart of the way that schedules are priced in terms in the pricing policy. Um, GSA was provided statutory authority to, uh, to establish an unpriced schedule 21 months ago. It's a, um, this would essentially provide flexibility for contractors to offer rates as they see fit. Uh, you could post the rates and then co- companies could, fo- and uh, customer agencies can focus on competition at the task order level. It has the benefit of reducing co- transactional costs at the contract level and reducing barriers entry, and it also has a corresponding benefit of eliminating the price reduction clause from scheduled contracts. The price reduction clause really doesn't work for services because of the nature of services. Buys are unique to each particular requirement, but at the same time, the pricing policy still has a price reduction clause for services, and the price reduction clause also restricts companies' ability to compete in the private sector. Um, which it seems to me is bad economic policy, especially at this time when, you know, when we're um, going to be looking to moving into a recovery. Um, and it's also bad procurement policy. It limits access fundamentally to new solutions because uh, companies are not in a position to more uh, to accurately price that for a new technology or capability, as well as Track the pricing for it on the commercial
0: sector to ensure compliance with the price reduction clause you write in this blog post Roger that simplicity is the key. Why is that important and what could GSA do to complicate things to generate some some issues for the people who are trying to use this.
1: Well, a simple, I, there's power in simplicity, um, and I, you know, in government contracts, we have a tendency, obviously, to make things much more complicated than they need to be. You know, the, a, a simple, straightforward approach here would be to, rather than negotiating these pricing and getting into the the the, the details with regard to an hourly rate, allow companies to post their rates. Um, and make them available for market research purposes by customer agencies, and then leave the actual pricing and value uh, dynamic at the task order level uh, for, for the customer agency and the contractors um, seeking to meet that requirement. It's, um, it, it would eliminate a, a great deal of time in bringing new products and services to the market. Um, it, it would enhance and open the aperture for the schedules program to add additional services. Companies would be less reluctant to bringing new capabilities to the schedules program for customer agencies um, at a time when, you know, we do need all the capability we can get across the, the, from the commercial
0: market. It strikes me, Roger, that that would create a pretty dynamic marketplace, too, because companies would certainly be aware of what their competitors were offering rate-wise and service-wise. Is there an appetite for a dynamic market like that in this area? Now, I'm not talking about the GSA level, I'm talking about the customer agency level and at the, down to the COs, or are they looking to say, here's the price, this is what I know I can pay and not worry about the, the potentially changing marketplace?
1: Well, I, I think there's a, key, um, there's a key statistic here, Francis, with regard to uh, the schedules program. Two thirds of the service orders are firm fixed price. So in that dynamic, customer agencies and contracting officers are looking for specific solutions to their specific requirements, and this dance and negotiation at the at the contract level around labor hour rates, and uh, and the pricing of those really doesn't translate at the task order level, where so much of the work is being done on a firm uh, firm fixed price basis. Um, as well, you know this this frankly is and critical to the success of schedules consolidation, because one of the key um, policy outcomes or operational outcomes for schedules consolidation is the idea that by consolidating the schedules, you'll be able to offer solutions to customer agency requirements. And one of the criticisms of the schedules is that it was too stovepiped and 20, 30 different schedule solicitations. This way, you bring it all together, you can provide solutions. Well. A, part and parcel that or dovetail to that is the next logical step is you have to update the pricing policy to reflect commercial practice so that companies can, can actually offer the solutions that are being
0: teed up by schedule consolidation. Roger Waldron, thanks very much for coming on the program. Great to have you, my friend. Thanks, Francis. Appreciate it. Up next, moving telework from a quick fix to a long-term solution. Straight ahead on Government Matters, implementing remote work the right way. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. The Defense Department wants its telework programs to continue after the coronavirus has ended. It is not the only agency thinking about keeping remote work programs going after the virus has passed. Rich McBee is president and CEO of Riverbed. Rich, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are you seeing agencies doing to prepare for that day or days after coronavirus is gone, and they're still thinking about telework, network optimization, and realizing the benefits of both of those?
2: Well, you know, uh, this hits so fast that many of the departments and agencies had to immediately respond to the coronavirus. Now, we had always thought that the number of um, workers that would be remote or working at home would be increasing generally over time. But to have them all go at once was a huge threat to major departments and agencies, we think that going forward, you are gonna see 10 to 15% of the workers will probably stay at home or in some kind of nomadic environment. So um, there's been a lot of uh, immediate things that were done and they'll keep those in place. Then what will happen is you'll see this expansion of the nomadic for the worker that uh, can work from any location and not be in a physical location again.
0: What are the implications of that? Because it it sounds to me like there are a number of different things at play there. There's a real estate footprint that the government needs to reconsider. There's a technology infrastructure that the government needs to reconsider and a lot of other factors there, Rich.
2: Well, and there's security factors and there's usability factors. If you think about what Riverbed does, we basically don't make networks. We make them run faster and we give them visibility into those networks if there's any issues that are happening. Traditionally, it's always been from the data center to the branch or the field office, but now it's from the data center to the branch to the home. And so what you're seeing is there is a new effort to make sure that there's a seed experience from the uh, data center, to the branch, to the home or wherever the employee is working.
0: What is the most important thing that an organization needs to consider when it's thinking about that line How, th- that looks dramatically different than what agencies are used to delivering for their employees, Rich?
2: Well, I think that the thing that they got to consider is making sure that applications work at speed, the same speed that they would see in an office environment and that then they can diagnose and figure out problems from an IT perspective and resolve them very quickly. And you have to do all of that in a very secure environment.
0: Is this a matter of putting together pieces or tools that agencies already have, or will this require this new way of doing business, this new way of presenting uh, a work environment? Will this require new technologies that agencies aren't using yet, Rich?
2: Well, you know, it will in some instances, but there's always the lead and the lag. Some part of the network is going to be leading, and some part of the network is going to have, you know, a very aged system. So you need to make these things seamlessly work. Uh, you know, no government agency or department is going to be able to do a a very fast turn of technology. It always is rolled out over through. time and so we have to be able to deal with the bleeding edge and the other end of the spectrum which is you know pretty archaic systems but you know we have the ability to do what does that
0: lead and lag look like how do you extend the lead and how do you uh, pull the lag back or whatever the right term is to be able to minimize it as much as possible
2: well, so the key is the magic is in the software that we have. The end user won't see it. So what he'll see or she will see is the applications running very fast, just like they would run in the office. Underneath the covers, there's a lot of complexity to make that seamless and work. And so we have systems that work at the very leading edge and that can accelerate applications on very archaic systems as well.
0: Rich, what will you watch as this as this all unfolds? What will be the markers for you for what agencies are doing to try to maximize the potential of remote working and, and keep it secure?
2: Well, I think that there's there's two pieces. Um, many of the uh, government agencies and departments already use our acceleration technology. And they use it to accelerate, you know, between the data centers and their branches. Uh, when the crisis hit, they they came to us very quickly and said, "Do you have anything? I've got all these workers at home, and these home workers are going to need access, uh, and they're going to need applications to be able to work at the same level or capacity that they worked at in the office." And we said yes. One of the things that we did is we implemented a program that um, allowed. Um, customers to use the software free for 90 days. And so they could quickly trial to see that they're getting a very good package and that it's working at home. And um, so, you know, as a government customer, usually they can't procure things overnight. It takes a long time. But uh, that was one of the ways that we helped by giving them a a free trial of our acceleration software uh, for the clients that sit at home. And uh, many of the departments and agencies took us up on that. are using it, and some of the ones that uh, I can't say, but, uh, you know, they did procure it immediately.
0: Thanks very much for coming on. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I appreciate you joining me today. Up next, the list of top cyber threats impacting the United States. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's on the list and how it affects you working remotely. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Foreign cyber threats are a national emergency, according to a declaration from President Trump. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS has a new list of the top cyber vulnerabilities in the U.S. Brigadier General Greg Tuhill, U.S. Air Force retired, is president of AppGate Federal Group and former federal chief information security officer. Greg, welcome back. Thanks for joining me. I have to admit, the top 40 jock in me was disappointed when this top 10 list came out because I thought we could do it like Casey Kasem style. And then I see that the like number 10 was CVE 2017 which doesn't make for a terrific countdown. What's the significance of this list, Greg?
3: Well, you know, think of it more like uh, David Letterman as opposed to uh, Casey Kasem. Uh, because as you take a look at the top 10 list that uh, US CERT is putting out this year, and and they've been doing this for many, many years, so bravo to the CERT for continuing this. They're sharing with you and um, the the rest of the world, here's what we're seeing both in 2019 as well as what we're seeing now in 2020, which is valuable information. And for the top 10 exploits that are being uh, uh, seen for 2019, they're the usual suspects and uh, we see one from 2012 that continues to be exploited because folks aren't recapitalizing or patching properly. One from 2015, five from 2017, two from 2018, and then a brand new one in 2019. Uh, and then as we look at 2020, uh, we see folks pivoting to attacking, uh, VPNs, such as the pulse connect, uh, uh, vulnerability citrix and then misconfigured office 365 so very valuable information and a great top 10 uh warning to everybody as as soon as you
0: said david letterman i heard the drum roll in my head for the top 10 list um it, it strikes me though these are the top 10 that means that there are a lot of others there must be i mean there are dozens of these hundreds of these and these are just the most common ones is that a fair read greg
3: uh, there there 's more than hundreds uh, francis there 's thousands that are out there but these top ten are largely predominant out there and let 's not forget that hackers are by their nature uh, very guarded when it comes to like zero days and the like, they hate using zero days what they want to do is they want to check all the locks on the doors before they have to use their super secret squirrel cyber tools and the vast majority of breaches are tied to these type of top 10 uh, vulnerabilities that haven't been addressed by patching or con- proper configurations You've told me
0: on any number of occasions that just doing the basics, the fundamentals, is rule number one of cybersecurity. Is that what you're getting at here? Is And is that what SIS is getting at here? These are the ones you should protect against first and worry about the other hundreds or thousands of these downstream.
3: Well, absolutely. It starts with uh, basic hygiene and learning from the past. So as we take a look down that list of the top ten that are out there, they're attacking older versions of Microsoft products, uh, Office 2007, for example, with the Loki vulnerability from 2017, the Drydex vulnerability from 2012 that takes a look at stealing banking uh, and other credentials out of your Microsoft Word products uh, that haven't been properly patched or updated. So there's a whole host of uh, things. and. You know, on that list, too, I think, which is really uh, interesting, is the fact that the Apache Struts vulnerability, such as what we saw exploited in the Equifax breach, remained uh, a significant uh, vulnerability in 2019. Uh, A lot of folks just aren't patching when we know uh, that we've had some very spectacular cyber failures. So people need to be paying attention to this list.
0: Three vulnerabilities here related to remote workers. Obviously, that's very high profile now. That's a trend I imagine that you,
3: continue, uh, you expect to continue to grow? Absolutely. And as you take a look at uh, the quick pivot to work from home, Hackers are going after those VPNs big time. Uh, The one that's cited in here with the Pulse Secure Connect uh, VPN is just one of many exploits we're seeing uh, against VPNs and the stealing of credentials. Um, Let's not forget the VPN technology came out and into the marketplace in the late 90s. So it's really an elderly type of construct and organizations that are still using VPNs as opposed to more modern uh, technologies such as software defined perimeters, uh, they're taking a a pretty significant risk and it's certainly reflected in the search warning. We're also seeing uh, with Citrix and some of the other reaching back into the infrastructure uh, the risk exposures changed significantly as you are now adding endpoints like the bring your own device, work from home environment. So uh, chief information security officers, and frankly, executives in any organization ought to be very concerned about the vulnerabilities from work from home and take active measures to protect them.
0: Calling a 25 year old construct elderly doesn't make me feel great today, Greg, but I'll take your word for it. Um, we have less than a minute left. What's the significance of President Trump designating foreign cyber threats a national emergency in your view?
3: I think it's uh, fair and prudent for the president to do so because we see a very active uh, cyber engagement strategy by adversaries ranging from nation state actors to cyber criminals. Uh, And we need to make sure that we are protecting against all of them uh, as well as insiders. uh, As we see a lot of companies restructuring and furloughing and laying off Uh, individuals. Insider threats now suddenly pop up as well and maybe a discussion point uh, uh, for another episode. Greg Tuhill, thanks very much, as always, my friend. Thank you, Francis. I'm Cherise Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all
0: things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Cherise Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.